You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here with us. So it was probably about 11 years ago, my daughter Mia was in kindergarten and I picked her up from school and then she stayed with me at the office for the rest of the day. And while she was there, uh, she saw this dagger that I have on my bookshelf. And this was a gift from a friend of mine who was a missionary in Yemen. And uh, this, by the way, this is not even um, that, this isn't even sharp. It's just, this is more of a fashion statement in Yemen, all men wear it. So um, if you remember a few years ago, a few years ago, like 20 years ago when like chain wallets got popular, this is their version of a chain wallet. So anyway, um, so she's like, dad, dad, that's like an amazing sword. So I'm explaining to her what it is. I'm like, oh, this is when our friends, John and Tanya, when they were missionaries for 10 years in Yemen, like, oh, that's cool. So anyway, so we're driving home. And uh, after, so she stayed with me the rest of the day. Then uh, we're driving home. I had to fill up my car with gas and I decided to run it through the car wash. And I put in the code, I go in, and then, you know how it is, there's usually someone at the end of the cycle as you, when you're going in. And so now the car, start, the, the car wash thing starts soaping up my car. And then that, the guy who's leaving decides that he's gonna put his car in reverse back it up so he can get 10 more seconds with the dryer hitting his car. Well, once you put a car in reverse in those things, the system breaks. And so now everything stops. Uh, the things that are holding the wheels kind of unlock. And then the guy realizes he had destroyed everything and just takes off. And now I'm all soaped up and it's, all, it's done. So I got to drive out to the front. You know, my daughter's five. I can't leave her in the car. I got to get her out. I open the door, all the soaps start seeping on me, and it's just a disaster. So anyway, I go inside, I tell the guy what happened, he gives me a refund for the car wash, and then my, we get back in the car, and Mia can tell I'm frustrated. She's like, Dad, um, why, why did the mean man do that? And I said, because uh, the mean man is not very smart. And, uh, and so she's like, do you need to get your sword? And, um, and I, I said, I said, no. And this is, you know, when you're, you know this if you're a parent, like you're waiting for good uh, parenting moments. And so I decide, I said, hey, um, I said, Mia, instead of, uh, maybe instead of stabbing him with the sword, uh, we could pray for him. And she's like, okay, why don't we pray for him right now? So I prayed and um, I am a little embarrassed to admit that I referred to him in my prayer as the not smart man in the Lexus, but... He was a not smart man in the Lexus and then uh, that he would come to know Jesus so he could become smarter. And, um, and then Mia said, well, dad, can I pray too? And, she, and I said, yeah. And she says, God, I just pray you change my heart towards the not smart man in the Lexus. And, um, and it's this beautiful moment you have as, as, as a dad and your daughter when she learns that prayer is better than homicide. 
And uh, it's, it's really wonderful. And so, well, anyway, the next day, the kids, <laughs> Carrie picks up the kids from school. Uh, Xander's not in school yet, he's only two, but picks up Mia, and then they got to go somewhere else in their car. So they get on the highway. Someone cuts Carrie off, and she almost hits someone. She's ah, swerves out of the road. And Mia, out of nowhere from the back, she's like, Mom, call Dad. He will get his sword and kill that guy. And, uh, and anyway, um, Mia's driving now. And uh, one of the things, and you know what I appreciate? She's still got that fire. Because, uh, you know, people are like, you know, you got to be, no. You got to have the fire when you're on the road. Anyway, so, uh, but <laughs> here's the thing. that When it comes to, like, no matter where you go, what you do, you're going to have conflict, problems, misunderstandings. The thing is that we, what we are trying to figure out is how do we find resolution in those moments? Not just with people that, we're never going to see again. But what happens when we have disagreement, major disagreement, with people that we care about? And, and by the way, just because we disagree doesn't mean that we don't care about them, doesn't mean we're not going to continue loving that other person. Um, but it simply means that we're going to disagree about something at a fundamental level. Now, here's what our culture tends to do. What our culture tends to do is vilify anyone who thinks differently than we do. If you don't agree with me on 100% of the issues, then unfortunately you're my mortal enemy and you must be destroyed. And I mean, this kind of scorched earth just has no future. And yet it's what so many people are, are engaged in. And by the way, if you want the news flash, the news flash is this, you don't even agree with yourself on every issue. If you have ever changed your mind on an issue, like you some, you saw some other information came to you, you're like, oh, you know, I used to think that, now I think this. You're in conflict with you. You may as well cancel yourself now, right? Because you've just disagreed. We call it, some people call it growth, but, um, but here's the thing, and this is what I want to spend our time focusing on. Uh, we're going to spend our time focusing on two situations that require resolution, that actually require two different methods that are used to get to the resolution, and what we need is a commitment as, and, uh, to resolve the conflict, and see how God brings a resolution. Now, here's the thing, and I know this, and I have been watching this with people, is that it's Christmas time. And so the level of anxiety starts as the day, as the numbers go up in December, so goes the anxiety, because you are coming to now the realization that by next Sunday or next Monday, you are going to see some people you don't really want to see. And the reason you don't want to see them is you saw them last year around this time and you're like, let's never do that again. And yet here we are. And, and, you know, and then there's the people in your family that'll say things like, well, you know, maybe they've changed. Let me tell you something, they haven't changed. They haven't. They are so much more themselves than they've ever been. And you're like, how can someone be more like that? <laughs> how is that even possible? Or frankly, legal. Uh, that someone can be more like that. And yet, listen, there is so much wisdom in this section that we're going we're gonna to see. Because, by the way, the conflict doesn't totally get resolved in every case. But what these wise people do is just give it time, give it space, and just watch God do some things. As, and, and listen, wise is the person. Wise is the person who learns how to resolve the conflict in his life. So we're going to start in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we're going to start kind of in the middle of this letter that gets written um, to the, uh, the believers that are in, uh, the Gentiles that are all over the place. But uh, we're going to start in verse 27. I'll give you an explanation in a moment. It says this, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. 
For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after uh, they had stayed there a long time, for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And if you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to look at two things. Once again, if you weren't here, this message is a part two of our message last week, where I would have probably taught all of this, but because people frown on 90-minute messages, I don't, but some people, you guys don't, but other people frown on 90-minute messages. We find ourselves in a place where I have a message that I'm preaching that has two points. I always preach messages with three points, but such is life. What I like to think of it is all one message. It's five points uh, from last week to this week. So this is point four, which is really point one. And if I haven't thoroughly confused you, I will continue the confusion. So anyway, but here's number one in your outline. If we want to fight a good fight, here's what we need is what we need to outline a path forward. A lot of, listen, and this is just true with conflict. And that is you can't just Sometimes people just want to disagree, disagree, but at some point you've got to decide, we disagree, what's the path forward? Now, if you weren't with us last time, let me give you a quick review. There was a council in Jerusalem with all of the leaders, elders, apostles over the issue of Gentiles who were coming to know Jesus. And the question that they were having is, do these Gentiles have to become Jewish first to then be accepted as believers, or do they just become Christians without going through circumcision or uh, keeping the law of Moses. And there's lots of debate. Peter stands up, says a whole bunch. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, proposes that they accept the Gentiles without going through all the rituals uh, of circumcision, but says that they should probably keep these four laws so that the Jewish believers won't be offended. And what I wanted to do, and I talked about this last time, and I said this in our message last week, is that I said, I'm going to have to come back to this because I don't have time to really go into what each of these laws means. So I want to take a few minutes and kind of walk through them. So the first one, if you're a note taker, which is what we read earlier, and that is stay away from food offered to idols. Now, this was an important issue in the first century because of all of these first century cults that food was part of the worship service. So typically what would happen in a lot of these cults, especially in the Greek and Roman cults, is that um, one, they would bring food. One-third of the offering was consumed in honor of the idol. One-third was given back to the person uh, that was for them to eat, that person offering. And then one-third was given to the priest uh, that was doing uh, the serving. And so now what James is saying is, is, listen, you're living in this area. These temples are all, par all part of the culture. What you want to do is you got to avoid that, and you definitely don't want to find yourself sitting and eating these foods inside the temple that have been offered to idols. This is not a great situation. And, um, and now, the other issue that, that comes up is that sometimes these priests would then take the stuff that was offered and sell it to the market, and then the market would resell it at a huge discount. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 
Paul deals with this whole thing of what do you do if you go into the market and there's food that's offered to an idol or do you have to inquire about it? So I did a whole message on that that you can track down wherever it is that you listen to your messages. But here's the second one. So uh, food offered to idols. The second thing is stay away from shedding blood. He just says in the text, he just says blood, but this is referring to shedding blood. Uh, some people think, then uh, there's some um, I was reading one scholar, he's like, it refers to drinking blood. And I'm thinking, what is this guy, like Dracula? Um, you know, like, that's not what that's referring to. They're talking about eating meat where the blood has not been properly drained. That's what they mean when they're drinking blood. But this, um, this is referring to the shedding of blood. And this goes back to, if you were with us last time, what I called the seven Noahite uh, laws. I mentioned that, that there are, that a person, uh, once again, this is um, Jewish teaching, that a person who is a Gentile doesn't have to keep all of the 613 laws of Moses um, and be subject to the law. Instead, what a Gentile can do is keep seven laws that were given to Noah. And if you keep that, then you'll have a place, what they call a place in the world to come. And so now of these seven laws, if we look at these four, they're all kind of heavily influenced uh, by that. And so this is, of course, the shedding of blood, not murdering, caring for life, and all that. The third thing is... Uh, in your notes, is staying away from eating strangled animals. Now, this is the one that refers to animals that haven't had blood properly drained. Uh, this is the commanding of not eating blood um, or animals with blood still in it. This is a command that's given nine times in the Old Testament. It's a huge part of Judaism. Blood has to be drained a certain way to be considered kosher. I will say this, and I talk to Christians, and sometimes they'll tell me, well, I order um, my meat well done at restaurants um, because they think that they're sinning if they order it anything less than, you know, like, would you like it rare, medium rare? No. What's above well done? Nuclear? I'll order it that. And, um, and that, by the way, that's all wrong. I had this experience with my dad once, and my dad, um, my dad ordered everything super well done. I, I mean, and it didn't matter what cut of meat it was, and he wouldn't eat anything unless the meat came out looking like the bottom of a shoe. And uh, it was just, it was just beyond human recognition. And uh, so I order my meat Pittsburgh and rare. That means charred on the outside, rare in the center. Um, and, and, and it is wonderful. And I have taught my children to do the same. I was out with my son yesterday and we, uh, we went to this uh, little steak place and um, he ordered first. He's like, I'll have a steak, I'll have a meat, I'll have a Pittsburgh and rare. And, uh, and, and the server was like, wow, is this what you do at home? I'm like, that's right, lady. That's what I do. And, uh, and so anyway, no, she was very nice. She's like, wow, that's amazing. And, um, and so, and she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm still, I still order medium. I'm like, well, there's time for you. And um, th we, can, we can work that out. Anyway, but one time I was having, it was a Father's Day, and I took my dad to the steak place. And um, his steak came in, and um, it was so well done. I mean, it was grotesque to look at. I mean, this is like, it was like the... It, it, yeah, it was so bad. It was, it's, like a, it's like a steak had been in a fire, like a, like a house had burned down. And then, like weeks later, like, oh, look, we found a steak. We should eat it. Anyway, so bad. And then, um, so then mine came. And, you know, it was like, had a nice char on the outside. It was rare in the center. And then, um, and it had like the nice juice under it. And he says to me, he goes, you see that? That's not biblical. That's blood. And, and I said, um, is that what your blood looks like? Because if your blood looks watery like this, we need to go to the hospital immediately. I don't even know how you're alive um, because this is, this is like thinner than lemonade. Uh, what's, and so, and, and he laughed and, um, 
and I was explaining to him, by the way, that, that juice, what people call blood is not blood. It's actually water and, and, and protein. And, um, and so, listen, I'm telling you this, my friends, I want you to be free because I want you to be free. And um, we want Jesus to say well done to us at the end of our life. We never say well done to the guy cooking our steaks. All right, there we go. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Follow me for more grilling tips. And so, like and subscribe. Smash that subscribe button. Whatever. How's, what do they say? I forgot. Anyway, so, and then oh, here, here's where we we'll stop laughing. Number four is stay away from sexual immorality. See how it just quieted up real quick? Like, oh, what's going on here? What's this guy doing? All right. Um, the Greek word here in the text is the Greek word pornea, which is where we get the English word pornography. But it's referring to any sex outside of marriage. Uh, in fact, sexual immorality in the New Testament is usually kind of a catch-all term uh, for sexual con- conduct that's outlined in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 is where God prohibits um, most things that are prohibited in, in the, um, in, in the uh, industrialized world. But this is where uh, incest, homosexuality, adultery, premarital sex, all of it is outlined there as prohibited. And James mentions it here, mentions this term, because the reason why this is important, because all of the nations around the, in the Roman Empire um, that didn't know God were practicing all of this stuff, and this is what he is trying to teach these young Christians to stay away from. In fact, in Leviticus 18, God outlines why, what he's saying when he says you can't do these things. And he says, do not defile yourselves in any of these things because this is how the nations I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Now, the thing you got to understand, the Exodus happened about 1450 BC. 1500 years after this is written, the Egyptians were still marrying their siblings This is just to give you an idea as to how far the Jewish law was just so far ahead of its time. And the fascinating thing, and I want to just talk about this for a second, is I mentioned uh, developed nations and developing nations. Every developed nation in the world and most developing nations, 17 of the 19 uh, prohibited sexual behaviors that are mentioned in Leviticus 18 are either illegal or frowned upon. That's just how far ahead of its time the Jewish law was. And by the way, the Roman world was a complete disaster when it came to uh, sex and relationships because of the influence of Greek philosophy. And um, I mean, and, and the, ar- the argument that people make today for uh, why the sexual ethics of the Bible are not um, accepting of certain practices, like, well, they just, they didn't understand committed relationships as they, as they weren't common in that day. Listen, an argument could be made, a good argument could be made that the, that the Roman culture was more sexually permissive than any other culture in history, including our own. 14 of the 15 Roman Caesars were openly homosexual. Uh, Socrates and most likely Plato, both homosexuals. In fact, the Greek philosopher Pisanias, in fact, I have a picture of Pisanias here. Every time I see a picture of this guy, I feel like he owns a fleet of John Deere tractors. And, um, but he did not. Um, Pisanias, once again, a very famous Greek philosopher, he said this, he said that the most virtuous love is a long committed relationship between two men. Now here's why he said that. He said it's because men are more intelligent than women and a long relationship allows two male lovers to better develop the intelligence one of the other. And uh, so anyway, there's, okay, dude. Anyway, let's get rid of that guy. Uh, 
He's, he's, got, some, he's got some weird stuff. And um, by the way, let me tell you this as well. The, what, what passed for heterosexuality in the Roman Empire was totally a disaster. Um, Roman men, especially men of status, um, had three women in their lives. They had the woman that they married to either gain status or keep status. They had the mistress that they would have sex with, and then another woman that was to be seen in public with and have conversation. The church leaders in Jerusalem are looking at this and saying, "This is not. none of this is going to work. So, uh, look, these young believers that have been influenced by this culture, here's what I'm going to tell you. You don't have to go through circumcision. You don't have to keep all 613 laws of Moses. But you're good. you don't have to keep the ceremonial laws. But the moral laws of the Old Testament matter. They matter for you and they matter for society. Now, let me tell you what a lot of times people will say. Is they'll say, well, you know, the Old Testament laws don't apply to us. And that's partially true if we're talking about um, offering sacrifices at the temple or figuring out how to divide our grain and making sure our clothes are only of one um, fabric. But when it comes to the moral laws, they still apply. And we see it here. Because the goal is twofold. It's twofold because one, this is how God wants us to live. But two, uh, we wouldn't have conflict with our Jewish brothers who are, some of them are still seeking to keep the law. Now, it's interesting to me, and, and just to kind of pull back a little bit, what I find so interesting is, is that the leaders in Jerusalem aren't necessarily taking a side. They're saying, if you're a Gentile, you don't have to keep the 613 laws of Moses, what we want you to do. But if you're Jewish and you still want to keep the law, then go ahead. And so there's this opportunity for, um, for differences within the church. And their whole problem was, but you, one can't, group can't look down on the other, even if they disagree. And even if you do disagree, you still have to love the other. And that, I think, is really important, um, even if you have someone who doesn't share the same conviction that you do. And so there's a lot of things, listen, that Christians disagree on. Um, not the basics, right? We're not talking about like, you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is, is the Bible God's word? But the, even there are secondary issues of theology that Christians don't agree with 100%. There's also issues of methodology where Christians disagree. I mean, you know, every time summer comes around, it is inevitable that I'm going to get uh, a few questions um, referring to, can, is it okay for a Christian to wear a two-piece bathing suit? Does, that, does wearing a two-piece bathing suit violate uh, what the Bible says about modesty? And some feel it's okay, and then others um, have issue with it. And they're like, well, where do you stand on that? And I just tell them, you know, my personal view. I personally wear one piece, and you just kind of do what you need to. And um, so <laughs> that's, that's that. But, um, and then sometimes people ask me, like, you know, do you let your kids watch rated R movies? Um, or do you watch rated R movies? And once again, Carrie and I have friends that will not watch anything rated above PG. And because um, and, I was telling them, oh, you see this movie, PG-13, I don't watch that. And, uh, and uh, okay, um, and, and don't even get me started. And it's like, how did you, you know, did you watch The Passion of the Christ when that came out? I mean, that's rated R. And, uh, or you maybe made an exception. And, um, and, and so, and this is one of the things, by the way, that we teach our kids. Um, Carrie and I have taught this always. And first of all, what the Motion Picture Association of America deems as appropriate or not, I could care less what they think. Um, these people are a disaster. Um, and so what we're going to do is, and this is what I've been, we've taught the kids from birth, and that is you're going to judge the content. And that is, is the content beneficial or detrimental? And so there are some rated R movies that I have no problem with my kids 
uh, watching, right? I mean, I think everyone should see the movie Schindler's List. And uh, that's a rated R movie. And so you just, I, I think it's a movie that people should watch. And so, but if you're, but yet there's probably, there's movies that are uh, rated PG that I wouldn't let my kids see. Um, it just, it really depends. And you know, um, so let's talk about one that's more serious that uh, is for sure going to get me in trouble. Um, is it okay for uh, Christians to celebrate Halloween? And uh, this is one I get, you know, this is, this, the time has passed, but I usually get it sometime in the fall. Now, and is it okay? And what's Calvary's position on it? And Cal by the way, Calvary's position is, is that you should make up your own mind about it. Um, the origins of Halloween are pagan. I don't think anybody is, is arguing that. The, the question that we're really asking is, is your son dressing up as Iron Man, is he paying homage to the devil um, by, by doing that? I think that's the question that we're asking, all right? Now, so let me, I'll tell you, um, and by the way, Carrie and I, we have friends on both sides of this argument, and so we had to just make up our own mind as to what we felt. And so I'll tell you what we decided to do, and then you feel free to, you know, email me and judge me for it. Um, so <laughs> why should today be any different? Um, and so, uh, so here's what we did. So let me tell you this. My kids, my kids have been dressing up every day since birth. Um, I mean, I'm not talking like dress up for Halloween. I'm saying they dressed up every day when they were young. Uh, and they, had, they have older cousins, and so their older cousins passed down all of the costumes that they had over the years, and then they got costumes. And, I'm, you know, we homeschool our kids, and so, you know, we don't have, like, a dress code. Um, and so I remember, like, my, every, I would walk out when the kids were starting school in the morning, and my son would have, like, a different costume on. And uh, it's just like, it, it wouldn't be weird for me to walk out, and, like, Spider-Man is doing his math. You know what I mean? I remember one time I walked out, and my son was wearing normal clothes. I told Karen, I'm like, what's wrong with him? And, uh, and uh, I'm like, is he sick? She's like, no, he just wanted to wear normal clothes. I'm like, all right, we'll keep an eye on him. That's not, that's weird. So we decided that it was kind of like cruel and unusual punishment for them to be able to dress up every day except the one day where you get candy for dressing up. But the thing that we decided that we didn't feel comfortable with is like, you know, there's people that like start putting like cobwebs and weird stuff and ghosts and you know they've got like that statue of satan in their front yard and they, like i don't feel i don't feel comfortable uh i'm joking about that by the way it's like everybody relax uh, anyway but i just feel, i felt i felt uncomfortable like you know getting my house all like halloweened uh like listen how do we make this thing look haunted like satan lives here and uh, i feel very uncomfortable with that but um when the neighbors came over and by the way this is like one of the few times like listen, most of us don't know our neighbors real well. But on Halloween, for whatever reason, it is socially acceptable to knock on your neighbor's door and be like, what's up? How you doing? You got any full-size Reese's in there for me? You know, and it's just, I, as a matter of fact, I do. Okay, great. Maybe something for the kids too. And, um, and so, but the point is, is that, um, so we felt like it was a great opportunity to get to know our neighbors because here's the thing that we found was our friends that were like totally anti, um, they're th I'm like, so what do you do when people knock on your door, we're like, well, we turn all the lights off and then we just turn the TV off real quick when no one's there. And, and it's just like, and, and I'm like, so that's the strategy? And it's like, hide in the laundry room because we love Jesus. And, uh, and so I'm like, yeah, okay, I don't think that's the best strategy. Now, is there a part of Halloween that's evil in nature? Yes, and you should stay away from that. But, um, you know, you just got to figure out where you land on that. And, and once again, I, I, this is not an issue for me of, you know, 
judging. You just got to figure out what you believe about it. By the way, I think there's great opportunity on Halloween. Um, every time my kids go out and they get candy, I, I, it's, it's an opportunity, when, especially when they were young, for me to teach my kids about tithing. And um, I would be God. And so I would take the first 10% of candy. And um, that was important. And then I'd come back and teach them about the IRS and take another 30%. And uh, <laughs> welcome to the real world, kid. And uh, it, was, it, was a really, it was a really good, it was really good for them. Really good for me too. And, uh, but here's the thing, here's the point. Can we disagree and still love each other? And, and by the way, I'm not saying that we don't debate issues because that's one of the things that happens like, you believe that, I can't believe you. Let's just, you know, now we're enemies. No, no, no. It's you believe that, wow, talk to me about that. And because the, the learning starts happening when we start asking questions. And, um, and, and so let me, I, I, my, my thing that I think is so important is if there's debate, if there's, hey, t t tell me, what's your argument? Make a good argument. Let me, I'm, I'm open. And, um, but listen, what marks our maturity as Christians is not our ability to debate. It's our, debil it's our ability to love people that we disagree with. That's why Jesus says, by all this, men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is why, listen, we have conflict because sometimes we're so bent on being right that we forgot the mark of Christian maturity, which was love. And this is really important based on what happens next. Look at um, verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back to visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take uh, with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take them uh, take the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now if you pause there, last thing I want to tell you, and that is this is that if we want to fight the good fight, um, we need to trust God's plan. Now, this is the part, I, it's, I'm always sad when I read this and, um, because you have a problem that you never want to see. And that is two friends, two ministry colleagues having a conflict that causes them to separate. And by the way, it all starts with a great idea. We just finished, Paul says to Barnabas, we finished this missionary journey. Let's go back. Let's go back and see how everybody's doing. Let's encourage them, strengthen them, whatever they have need. Let's see if we can meet the need. And, and by the way, this breakup doesn't happen because of a theological issue. It's a leadership decision that causes Paul and Barnabas to split. Now, here's the thing you have to know. What is, what is it over? It's over this young man named John Mark. John Mark had started out, now if we can see the map real quick. Um, we started, they started their journey in Antioch. If you remember, a few weeks ago, they went to Cyprus, and then they went to Pamphylia, which, um, and this is what, what the passage we read before. This was kind of a violent area, and apparently John Mark must have seen some things here that made him uncomfortable, because he got on a boat and went from here all the way back to Jerusalem. And then Paul and Barnabas went to Antioch and Pisidia, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and then they made their way all the way back around to Antioch. Now, the other thing that's important for you to know is that Barnabas, uh, his cousin, is John Mark. And so this was 
he didn't want, you know, they get to, through Cyprus, they get to Pamphylia, and then John bails on them. And so in, uh, I put it in your notes in Acts 13, verse 13, it says, now Paul and his party sailed from Paphos, came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So now they're going back to the same place. And Paul is thinking, no, he freaked out when we were there last time. Barnabas, John Mark is a no-go. I don't want to repeat what happened last time. And then Barnabas is adamant about taking John Mark. And, you know, maybe he's making his argument. Hey, you know, John Mark, I've talked to his mom and, and his parents, and he's doing so much better now. And, you know, let's give him another chance. And then maybe... Barnabas kind of reminds Paul, like, hey, remember when you were kind of out in the middle of nowhere? I'm the one who brought you into ministry. Remember that when you were in Tarsus? Like, how dare you bring that up? Anyway, who knows? I don't know if it was like that, but I just like to say things. And, um, but here's where we see the two personalities clash. Paul is the mission-minded, let's reach the world for Jesus and put it all on the line. And Barnabas, listen, Barnabas is not even his real name. It's his nickname. It's a name that means son of encouragement. This is the guy that believed the best in people and leaving people behind is just not part of Barnabas's programming. And so, and listen, this is important because God created you and everyone around you with a personality. And that personality is something that God wants to use for his glory as you surrender it to him. And I tell you, I, I am, uh, I, I just, I so connect with this story because I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm a lot like Paul. My wife is a lot like Barnabas. I'm the one that's like, let's go, let's do it. And my wife is the one kind of making sure, is everybody okay? Everybody feeling good? All right, let's, you know. And, um, but my wife and I have done this over the years where we've, we've taken these, uh, you know, these like personality tests that you can take where that'll tell, you know, if you're an introvert or extrovert or how you make decisions and whatnot. And, and these tests always reveal that my wife and I are just like the exact opposite people. And it's like, how in the world did you two get married? And, uh, and because she's, she's very introverted and I'm, my, I'm not like a super, super extrovert, but I'm a little bit extroverted. I'm extroverted enough to talk to random people at Target and ask them how they're doing, if they need any help finding anything. And asking people who, who dare come to Target with a red shirt, I just ask them, hey, you know, you want to find light bulbs? And uh, I don't work here. I'm like, uh, that doesn't matter. Do you know where the light bulbs are? And, uh, and so anyway, um, so we're different in that way. And so we were there just the other day and she's like, stop it. What are you doing? And, um, and I do, I just, and then I ran into some people from church and then I really go crazy. And uh, so anyway, um, but our, 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 um, <laughs> our personalities are very different. And um, so after you take these tests, they have these charts of like what character you would be in a movie. And so they took four movies. They took Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and uh, the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe and said, this is who you'd, you'd be. So they took my wife's profile and these are her characters based on her, uh, her personality. Luke Skywalker, Frodo, Harry, and Spider-Man. And by the way, I use the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man because he doesn't get enough respect. And so we're here to turn that around, all right? Thank you. He did a great job in those movies. Pass it on to your friends. And anyway, we'll be doing a symposium here in a couple weeks on, no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, and uh, so this is my wife, okay? The hero of every story. Then they did mine, and this is me. And uh, the Emperor, Magneto, Voldemort, and Sauron, who I think is the only one married, he's the only one wearing a ring. And so, and, um, so, and, and, and so, and my wife is, she sees this, 
she is so mortified. Like, what have I done? And uh, who is this guy? And, uh, and so she said to me, she's like, I don't even know what to say. I'd like, what would you be like if you weren't a Christian? She's like, you'd be in prison. That's what it is, you'd be in prison. And she's like, and I'm like, well, but on the bright side, based on these people, probably be running the prison. So that's something. So anyway, but listen, and sometimes we think that personality, yeah, but it's too different. It's just, uh, listen, my wife and I are examples that you can be as different as can be and still have tremendous joy in your relationship if you're willing to work through conflict, all right? And so, but you know, Paul and Barnabas' story here doesn't end with a laugh. They part company. And the story of the book of Acts doesn't follow, unfortunately doesn't follow Barnabas' ministry. In the next chapter, which we'll see after Christmas, um, in chapter 16, Luke will join Paul's entourage. And then we'll get a lot, you know, just as much detail um, from that perspective of Luke being with Paul. And it'll be um, all Paul through the end of the book until we get to um, Rome at the end of the book. And Paul is waiting for his day in court before Caesar Nero. So what happens to Barnabas? Church history gives us a little bit of detail uh, about his life. After this split, he does exactly what Luke tells us. He goes to Cyprus. But he goes to Cyprus and he stays there, planting churches, reaching people until his martyrdom in 61 AD. Um, And to this day in uh, traditional churches like the uh, Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, he he, has been sainted. Uh, June 11th is St. Barnabas Day because he is the founder of what's called the Cypriot Church. And um, so, but let me let me answer this question because everybody, when we get to this section, what everybody wants is they want it. Okay, I appreciate all that, but who was right? And um, now here's the thing that's important to note. There is a good argument to be made on both sides of who's right. Unfortunately, um, you know, ultimately both of them were right because both of them were doing the thing that God called them to do. We just don't like it because it's Paul and Barnabas. We've been, they, the two of them have been together. I'm like, come on, man, Paul and Barney, they have been at this thing. They're so powerful together. I love you. You love me. We're a happy family, right? That's where this, that song comes from, Paul and Barnabas, I think. And so, or it should be, but that's how, and, and yet sometimes, listen, sometimes God allows these disagreements to happen because now instead of one ministry team, we've got two teams covering more ground. And to not leave you hanging, let me just say that um, it seems as though Paul and Barnabas patch things up later. Because when Paul writes his letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 9, right around verse 6, he commends, uh, Paul is very complimentary of Barnabas' ministry and what's happened after uh, they've, they've stopped doing ministry together. But here's the point that I want to bring up uh, on this issue as we, as we draw it to a close. Um, because we're a lot of times, we're trying to figure out who's right. And when we figure out who's right, we're going to figure out who's wrong. And when we figure out who's wrong, we're going to hold it against them forever. When maybe what God was doing is that somehow God knew all along that this was going to happen. And it would lead to a chain reaction of events that God wanted to see take place. And by the way, not that God is the one that wants there to be sharp contention or, you know, kind of a falling out. No, Um, or that God is causing this to happen. But we can know this for sure. God is going to use all of our actions, good and bad, for his ultimate purpose. I I read this story years ago, and and I'll read it to you. um, about. And it's a simple story about a man who loses a horse. Um, 
uh, and look at what happens. The horse runs away. The man's neighbor comes to him and says, you know, it's bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. And the, the guy who was the horse owner said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse comes back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing, it's not bad luck, it's good luck, you got 20 more. And the man says, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses and the young, the young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. It's bad luck that these horses came. And the guy says, what do I know about these things? A few days go by and a, and a bunch of gang members show up looking to, for recruits and they're looking for able-bodied young men. They're about to pick this young man when they realize that his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. Let's move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. And it's just, you just go on and on and on. And, here, and here's, um, here's the point. And by the way, it's like, well, the story didn't really end. No, the story has no end because that's kind of how life works. We don't know how, we don't know the whole story yet. But if you and I will trust God, especially when there's disagreement and give things a little bit of time to breathe, everything becomes clearer. Because we know Paul's contribution to the church. Paul wrote half the New Testament, planted churches all over the Roman Empire, and that next to Jesus, the Apostle Paul is the most important figure in the Christian church and in Western civilization, and there is no debate about that. But Barnabas's Barnabas's biggest contribution to the church is a little harder to see because it's twofold. His first contribution to the church was getting the Apostle Paul off the bench when he was home and into ministry. And his second biggest contribution was getting John Mark back and bringing him back into ministry after he had failed. My friends, John Mark, and most of us don't know about him, John Mark is a giant of the faith. John Mark is the person who brought the gospel to the continent of Africa. He was born in Cyrene in northern Africa to Jewish parents. His Jewish parents eventually um, immigrated to Israel, to Jerusalem, and then became Christians. Um, now, I said to you that John Mark is uh, the cousin of Barnabas. Church history tells us also that his father, whose name is Aristobulus, was related to the Apostle Peter's wife. So that's how later on when they find themselves together, you can see that there's a kind of a familial connection between the two. The dispute that happens between Paul and Barnabas happens around 52 AD. And then John Mark kind of fades into the background because he goes with Barnabas to do ministry in Cyprus. Then he just appears out of nowhere in one of Paul's letters in the book of Colossians chapter 4 where it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So then Paul sends John Mark to do ministry in Colossae. After this, John Mark returns to Africa to plant the churches, first churches in that continent. Which, by the way, um, if, if, if you come, have a Roman Catholic background, you know this, that the center of, you know, the, pers the, the person who's venerated is um, Peter in the Roman church. The person who is venerated in the African church is John Mark because he was the one who brought the gospel to the continent of Africa. And so um, 
He goes to Africa planting churches at the encouragement of his family member, Peter. From there, he goes to Rome and he stays with Peter um, doing ministry. Then Peter gets arrested and Peter is ultimately crucified in 64 AD. He returns to Africa with all of his notes uh, from Peter and he writes the gospel that bears his name. So the next time you read the gospel of Mark, be thankful that God uses imperfect people. Because Mark's gospel is Peter's account of Jesus's life, but Mark was the scribe, which is why the gospel carries Mark's name. So let's fast forward now to the end of Paul's life. Paul's been imprisoned again. He's in Rome. He's waiting to die in the Mamertine prison. He writes his final letter to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he tells him, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. You see, John Mark did not start well, but he grew. And he was a faithful friend and partner in the gospel to Paul. And I think we can all agree that he finished well. And friends, can I just tell you this, that the conflict that you might have with whoever it is you have it with, whether it's your spouse or your coworker, your friend or your family member, and it hasn't started well, can I, I just want to encourage you to just maybe give it some time. You give it some time because the final chapter hasn't been written yet, that there's still many miles to go before this story is over. And we don't know yet how God is going to take all of these tests and turn it into a testimony that honors him and blesses us. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. Thank you for that good work that you want to do in and through us. Lord, we think about conflict that we have, and when we talk about conflict, we think of a person, or we think of people. And Lord, we pray, the people that you've brought to mind, we pray that there would be peace, that there would be compassion and understanding. And Lord, more than anything, that you would bring about a resolution on your timetable in a way that only you could do it that it would honor you. So Lord, we're grateful for John Mark and we pray that we would have a life, even if we didn't start well, help us to finish well. We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.